There are some things one doesn't talk about or shouldn't. Care to guess who said that? everyone and welcome to Season 5, Episode 6 of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast. This is where we talk about writing, spies, and writing about spies. I'm your host, espionage author P.A. Duncan. Back in 2016, John le Carré published what's been termed his memoir, titled The Pigeon Tunnel, Stories from My Life. I believe I read it in 2017 and was fascinated by this glimpse into the life, creative mind of an author I considered a literary mentor. He didn't know that, but that's how I thought of him. But this was more than a memoir. Le Carre divulged his inspiration for many of his novels and some of his most notable characters, which adds interest to the stories and essays in the book. For example, he was assigned by British intelligence to Berlin when the Berlin Wall got its start. After witnessing some of the desperate attempts to flee from the East to the West and how the East German police and the Stasi dealt with these attempts so ruthlessly, he was determined to work such a scene into what became his, I think, most famous book, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. If you've read the book, or seen the movie, you know the scene. In Pigeon Tunnel, he also spends a great deal of time and writing on two people in his life, his father, Ronnie Cornwell, and the notorious British traitor, Kim Philby. John Le Carre, of course, was David Cornwell, and Cornwell's father, Ronnie, was a con man and petty criminal who was in and out of Cornwell's life and who tried to ingratiate himself to his son once Le Carre became a successful and wealthy author. At one point, Ronnie actually sued his son, saying that his creativity came from his father and that his father should share in some of the largesse. David himself opined that his father sued him because in a speech David made, he made no allusion to his father at all. The suit was eventually thrown out. Le Carre did bail his father out of jail on a few occasions and ultimately paid for his father's funeral and memorial service. To say this was a complex relationship is to understate the reality of it. 
Regarding Kim Philby, Le Carre barely conceals his hatred of a man who served in the same service as he, but who betrayed everything and everyone he knew. The traitor in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is based on Philby. One of the most fascinating facts of this relationship revealed in the Pigeon Tunnel is that shortly before Philby died in Moscow in 1988, a Soviet writers organization invited Le Carre to Moscow to speak to them, and he went. One of the writers asked Le Carre if he would sign a book for a friend of his, and Le Carre asked who it was. Kim Philby. Le Carre refused. What comes across from the book The Pigeon Tunnel is that Le Carre, Cornwell, had all the traits as the spies he writes about in his novels. Dare I say he portrays real spies and their real-life flaws, his own included. Indeed, his honesty in the book about his foibles, including his numerous infidelities while married, he doesn't cover up or cover over. He acknowledges them. And he acknowledges his responsibility for any distress that he caused. Very British, you know. The book also offers his commentary on social and political upheavals in the latter part of the 20th century, namely the end of the Cold War and all the issues that brought to the surface and which we still deal with today. But I also learned some things beyond the details of Le Carre as a man and a writer. The power of telling stories, for one. How a storyteller infuses his or her worldview into their work to help others make sense of that world. I learned, or rather had reinforced, that human nature is both profound and complex. Humans are never cut and dried all on one side or all on the other. We exist in a gray area that makes the world difficult to understand. But that gray area is a world where spies, criminals, and politics thrive. Not to state the obvious, but all of Le Carre's works were influenced by two key aspects of life and society, politics and spying. This is something I've tried to emulate in my writing. Notice I said tried, not that I've succeeded. Le Carre understood that the lines between good and evil are often blurred, as blurry as the lines between friend and foe in espionage. He has shown in his works that spies can have moral dilemmas and that sometimes that's good and other times that's bad. In the Pigeon Tunnel, Le Carre is also honest about, well, let's call it the dark side of the writing life. The fact that the writer becomes obsessed often 
with writing to the detriment of personal relationships. Le Carre saw this, though, as a necessary sacrifice for creativity. What becomes clearer to me about Le Carre's writing as a result of reading The Pigeon Tunnel is that some writers, not Le Carre, don't realize that writing is an ongoing journey to understand human beings, again, to make sense of a quirky and sometimes traumatizing world. That's why we read books to escape into other worlds because our lives may not be what we expected or wanted or have strived for. Then late last year, while scrolling through Apple TV, one of the too many streaming services I have, I discovered a documentary entitled The Pigeon Tunnel. I watched the trailer and indeed, it was a lengthy interview with Cornwell slash Carre about the book, The Pigeon Tunnel. And this interview was filmed in 2022, not long before his death from pneumonia at the age of 89. So I watched it this weekend, and it's a must-watch if you're a Le Carre fan. The unseen interviewer and the cinematography makes you feel as if you're sitting across the table from Le Carre, and he's answering your questions. The questions and his answers go beyond what's in the book, The Pigeon Tunnel. You do have to have a subscription to Apple TV to view it, but as far as I'm concerned, it's worth the money. It's a must-see if you're a Le Carre fan. Indeed, at the end of the documentary, after listening to him in his own words and how he reinforced the profound themes that were in his book, The Pigeon Tunnel, I realized how much we'd lost in having no more good spy stories after his passing. Now, I read a review of the book The Pigeon Tunnel, which said that the title came from an espionage term, that spies used tunnels to carry messages back and forth, and therefore they called it a pigeon tunnel because that's what pigeons were used for for centuries. However, I could never find that reference in any of my research. In the book itself, Le Carre explains that when he was a teenager, his father, Ronnie, took him to Monte Carlo when Ronnie was on a gambling spree. And the casino slash hotel where they were staying had this special spot where the Gamblers, if they wanted to, could hunt pigeons. And they were placed on this balcony, which had a small lawn, and it looked out over the sea. And the casino had captured pigeons, had lured pigeons to their rooftop, and they captured them. Then they would take them down to these small tunnels underneath where the men would be hunting. 
and released them through a tunnel called the Pigeon Tunnel. And when Le Carre, as a young David Cornwell, experienced this, he decided that he had to use that term, the Pigeon Tunnel, in something that he was going to write about. And he admits in the book and in this interview that almost every one of his novels first working title was The Pigeon Tunnel, and then he finally used it for real in his memoir. Of course, the quote I opened the podcast with is from The Pigeon Tunnel, and I'll close this section of the podcast with another that I found pretty profound, and I realized that's what his writing is all about. No two spies believe in the same secrets. And now it's commercial time. All four books in my 9-11 series, Meeting the Enemy, are still on sale for 99 cents each for the ebooks all month, all month long. That's less than $4 for four full-length novels that take you from that fateful day of 9-11 to the mountains of Afghanistan, to the halls of the CIA, and finally to CIA black sites. My own journey in writing this began not long after 9-11 and only concluded last December when book four was published. Remember what I said above about writers becoming obsessed with writing? Yeah, I get it. Prologues, the special ebook box set of the four reader magnets associated with the four novels in Meeting the Enemy, will also remain on sale through this month. Again, it's only 99 cents. So essentially, you get five books for under $5. Happy Valentine's Day. I'll post the links to both Meeting the Enemy, the series, and the box set for prologues in the description of this episode. And commercial over. Last week, I read from Meeting the Enemy, book one, Terror. So it's only logical that this week, I should read from book two, Revenge. But let me set that up a bit. Alexei Bukharin, thinking that Mai has died in the collapse of number two World Trade Center, has emptied KGB SVR bank accounts from Canada to Bulgaria and is now in Afghanistan and has bought himself a small army. Mindful that most Afghans don't have any warm feelings about Russians, even one who identifies as a Ukrainian, he adopts the name Mir Saradi and begins his hunt for bin Laden. He's deep into this hunt when Mai Fisher, as Catherine Burke, CIA chief of staff, now leading a CIA paramilitary team, arrives in Afghanistan to hunt Alexei down. That part of her mission is somewhat of a secret 
from her CIA boss and from her team, and, well, complications ensued. Meeting the Enemy, Revenge, Part 1, Arrows of God, Chapter 4. October 19th, 2001, Kabul. After more than a week of practice, Abdullah was satisfied with how Alexei prayed, and after tearful goodbyes from Tarife and Sulima, they returned to Kabul. Alexei wasn't sure if Suleiman's tears were for her father or him. Kabul had seen enough war and civil war over the centuries to derive some sense of normalcy from their aftermaths. Citizens went about the businesses the Taliban allowed. Alexei saw damage from the American bombing campaign, but not widespread destruction. Smart bomb targeting had improved over the years, but even surgical strikes had caused collateral damage. However, an acquaintance of Abdullah's had told him the Red Cross Red Crescent was vexed because the Americans had bombed their warehouse three times. Alexei heard distant explosions and the occasional sound of gunfire, but life went on in the colorless, preternaturally quiet streets. Lack of color wasn't correct. The sea of tan or brown or black clothing worn by men was broken by the occasional powder blue or white burqa. The preferred color, though the most expensive, Abdullah explained, was purple, and Alexei saw little of that. But he wondered why the Taliban put women in such fetching colors. Seeing a woman covered from head to toe only piqued Alexei's curiosity to see what was beneath it. He must have stared too long at a woman in an ivory burqa, and someone struck his back with a leather cosh. Fist clenched, Alexei turned to discourage that, but Abdullah interceded. This is my cousin from the far north. He is not yet accustomed to our holy laws. Forgive him. Abdullah explained to the Ministry of Vice and Virtue Enforcer. Then teach him, or you will be punished. It is his first day here. Tonight we will read the Quran. We will consult an elder, and he will understand. The little man shook his kosh at Alexei. Make sure you do. The Enforcer walked away, head turning left and right, looking for more sinners to punish. Alexei flexed his shoulders to ease the ache the Kosh had called. I should have broken the bastard's neck, he murmured. And we would both be dead, Abdullah said, and urged him to walk on. A few blocks later, they came across a pregnant woman with a man beside her. A gust of wind flipped her burqa up and exposed her fully clothed front. Two men rushed over and beat her with the ubiquitous cautions. She folded herself over her unborn child and took the blows on her back. Her husband held her, trying to settle the burqa again over her. Alexei started forward, stopped again by Abdullah's grip on his arm. We must stay out of it, Abdullah said. Her husband is no man to let that happen. 
No, my friend, he does the right thing. If he tries to stop them, they will put him in jail. If that happens, she will not be able to go out to the doctor or to the market. He understands her pain. The man was pale, his lips compressed, his grip on his wife fierce. My wouldn't have hesitated to kick the enforcer's asses, laws or no. No, she must not intrude into his thoughts. The thought of her paralyzed him, and Abdullah had to urge him along. Bad enough she came to Alexei in his dreams, leaving him bereft and empty when he woke without her. But the prayers he shared with Abdullah gave him solace and peace as he focused on a god he'd ignored for a long time. When he communed with God, he didn't think of my. Abdullah must have been confident Alexei's praying would pass the ultimate test when he took Alexei to a large mosque for Friday prayers. No one among the throng paid them any attention. Even the enforcers who moved among the worshippers to strike those who weren't penitent enough. Outside the mosque, Alexei pressed coins into the outstretched palms of the begging widows and earned blessings from old men who watched and nodded in approval. On the two quiet streets, Alexei caught glimpses of people who lived in a fear so palpable that it etched lines on even the youngest of faces. People didn't meet his eyes or looked away quickly if they did. They all scurried, hurrying to accomplish whatever had brought them into the streets without attracting attention. Enforcers moved among everyone, looking for the slightest of faults. The enforcers claim to be the most devout Talibs, Abdullah murmured. You can tell them from their dirty clothes. Clean clothes and bathing, except for prayer, are not virtuous. If you wash regularly and wear clean clothes, you are not humble. The enforcers' beards are the longest, their eyes the most fierce, their turbans the blackest. Black means you are descended from the prophet, peace be upon him. I think they practice some lenient genealogy. Alexei wore a medium brown turban wrapped the Taliban way. Abdullah wore his in the Uzbek style, a single long piece of cloth wound about the crown of his head. Too many people are looking at me, Alexei murmured. You are probably the tallest man they have ever seen, and your eyes, because they are blue. Best you keep your eyes downcast, more humble that way. Alexei had hired the men of two minor warlords, also ethnic Uzbeks, and their men numbered in the dozens. Alexei had scattered them among the populace of Kabul so they wouldn't garner much attention. Using some of Alexei's money, Abdullah had convinced a Taliban military commander that they were here to fight with them. Their real mission for the Northern Alliance was to take the television station when the Alliance made its move to take the city. The U.S. Special Forces and the CIA teams had whipped the warlords into a decent army in a short amount of time. More tribes joined the Northern Alliance daily and would be a formidable force. Alexei knew bin Laden would be nowhere near Kabul, with Americans on their way there, but he still sought him among the taller men he saw 
in the obvious non-Afghani faces, in the lean, Semitic visages of the Arabs among the Taliban. His quest would never be that easy, though he already had blood on his hands. He and Abdullah and their small army had had many skirmishes in the mountains with tribes loyal to the Taliban. There were the foreigners, Al-Qaeda, who were easy to spot. They had the newest clothes, weapons, and an unending supply of late-model Toyota pickup trucks, all courtesy of oil-rich sheikhs who wanted to score points with God. The locals charged ahead to fight, and the foreigners hung back to strategize. The mark of cowardice. Why risk your own life when you could send the natives out to fight with assurances they'd end up in paradise? Alexei had killed them without compunction and with disdain. The few he'd let live a while were eager to give him information in order to save their lives, but he killed them when he understood he'd learned all they knew and left their bodies unburied so they would never gain paradise. A Chechen prisoner had divulged information on the whereabouts of Muhammad Atef, bin Laden's military chief. The idea for the September 11th attacks might have been bin Laden's strategy, but Atef would have developed the tactics. The U.S. Special Forces also hunted Atef for intel, but if Alexei got to him first... The Chechen had said Atef was headed to Kabul, to his headquarters there, the old Afghani military academy. We will go there, Abdullah had said, and Alexei dispatched one of the ubiquitous Uzbeks loyal to Abdullah to Kabul ahead of them to shadow Atef's movements. That man kept Abdullah updated through a series of relatives and messengers more reliable than the city's telephone service. Even better, no one could trace his movements. Can we trust them? Alexei had asked Abdullah. His mother, Tarifay's cousin, was executed by the Taliban for adultery. Her husband had been wounded in a skirmish and died from blood poisoning. She had to marry his brother. But the other wives didn't like her and made the accusation to their shared husband. He turned her over to the Talibs, and they stoned her to death in front of her children. His hatred of the Talibs and the Sheikh is as hot as yours. Then he and I understand each other. All right, that's enough for this week. Next week's reading will come from Book 3, Treachery. Next Wednesday is Valentine's Day, not a day meaningful to me anymore. Yeah, if I sound bitter, it's because I am. To quote the bard, the course of true love never did run smooth. So if you're out with your significant other on Valentine's Day, take a break from having only eyes for each other and keep an eye out for spies. <laughs>
Ukraine.